This, this passage of scripture, we're going to get into Genesis chapter 28 today. And uh, this chapter of scripture has real significance to me. I, I feel like I can relate with this a lot. In fact, it was just thinking about it and, and studying it last night was breaking me down. Um, because we're going to see him go from having everything he needs to having nothing other than Jesus. And um, and that's very much how I felt when I came to Ada. I mean, I, I was born again the first night I was in Oklahoma. And uh, I came, I did not know anybody in Ada. I don't have any family in Ada. I didn't have any friends. I certainly don't know the well-to-do of Ada when I got to Ada. There was nobody that, you know, didn't have that social safety net, if you will. And um, I can remember being so poor, dude. <laughs> I laugh about it today, but it's... I just had nothing, and I, and I so much wanted to be able to be a giver. I want to be able to be someone that can give to see God's purposes accomplished, and, and, and I just didn't have it. I can remember times where, you know, we'd have, like, missionaries come speak, and I'm like, I'm so inspired. I'm ready to give to them, and I've got two bucks. I mean, that's all I had. You know, I was telling, um, I was telling Darren, like, I can remember being so poor. I, the only place I could afford, there was one tiny little I don't know if you call it a house, like apartment, like the entire building could fit in the foyer of this church. It was tiny. And it should have been condemned probably 40 years before that. And they told me, hey, this thing is going to be condemned. It's about to be bulldozed. They're going to make a park. There's a parking lot at East Central where it was today, right? And so the first few months I was there, I mean, it was the only place I could afford. But I, couldn't afford, I didn't have enough money to turn on the electricity and the water and the gas. So I had to choose, like, which of these do you want, right? And I was like, well, it's fall and summer. I won't need, you know, hot water yet, right? So, I mean, it was cheaper to buy a blanket than it was to turn on, to pay the deposit to be able to turn on the gas. Like, that's how poor I was. Uh, I can remember one, one, one week having 90 cents to go the week. I didn't have any food in my house, none. No cans. You know, you got those cans of food, like, You've moved, if you moved a couple of times, you got those cans of food that like they've moved with you three or four times, you know, like someday I'll eat that. Like I didn't have any of that either. Okay. I was done. I had nothing. And, um, and I can remember though, my, the, where I worked at though, had a coffee bar. And as long as you were at work, you could drink all, all you wanted coffee and they had creamers. <laughs> so to me, that was like, that was my food. That was for about three days. I can remember praying, just being like, Lord. I've always been as faithful as I know how. That doesn't mean I'm serving him perfectly. Obviously, I did not. I'm not serving him perfectly today. But I was trying to be faithful, even monetarily. I was a tither. <laughs> not, not hard to tithe if you only have $10. <laughs> Math is easy. right? But I don't remember. It was two or three days into that week, uh, a lady from our church. And I didn't tell anybody about any of that stuff. I was so ashamed. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't going to tell anybody about any of that stuff. But a lady from our church had pulled up in the back of her pickup, which is full of groceries. And she says, I was grocery shopping, and I just felt like the Lord, oh, it's going to bring me down. The Lord wanted me to buy you groceries. And I was like, you, you heard Jesus, sister, let me tell you. I can remember, I was so poor that to me, like a really, a meal that I looked forward to was like ramen noodles and beans. And if I had a lot of money, I could even get a little milk. And that made like a meal for me. And I was a youth pastor at the time. Like any dollar or two that I had left over, I wanted to be able to be, to, to be a giver. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a millionaire or a billionaire today. I'm a you know, solid thousandaire today. But compared to that, I'm very wealthy. You know, Malachi talks about, test me in this and see, you know, bring all the tithes in. See if I won't pour you out a blessing that you can't contain. And I thought about that last night. I thought, 20 years ago, I'm, I'm saying a prayer. God, I just want to be able to give 10 bucks to the missionary. And I always had at least one job. A lot of times I had two jobs, at least one full-time job, and then a lot of times part-time jobs as well, and being a youth pastor and going to college. And I, I figured it up last night, and the Lord, little by little, has increased over the years the amount of money I've been able to give. I was, I was able last year to give more money than I made the year I said that prayer. <laughs> Granted, 
when you're making what I make, it's not quite as hard. But that that broke me down because I was I'm reading about this passage where Jacob, here's Jacob, who's from the wealthiest family in that entire area of the earth, and he's crossing over. He's he's been promised you promised a blessing and the firstborn inheritance and all that stuff. And he is crossing over with nothing but his staff. He has a rock for a pillow, literally, because he doesn't have an extra set of clothes to bundle up under his head. That's where he's at. But he has something to hold on to. And that is a promise from the living God. I will be with you. I got nothing. Doesn't matter. You've got me. And I can remember that very same, in a very real way, being in that place. And I learned a lot of really good, sometimes tough lessons, but good lessons about the faithfulness and goodness of God in those, those years. Because there was a lot of times where I had nothing, I mean nothing, and yet somehow at the last moment, the Lord would get to me what I needed. I can remember one time my, my pickup broke down. My old pickup. My beat up pickup that was like, <clears throat> I was so poor. I got a lady backed up into my pickup. I didn't have the money to get it fixed. But the insurance paid so much on the claim. And I was like, okay, do I have to use that to get the pickup fixed? And they're like, well, no, but that's the claim. I was like, awesome, I can buy groceries. <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, that's where I was at. Anyway, thinking about that last night, about where I was and what the Lord was doing, and there were some great lessons that there was times where, like I was saying, my pickup broke down, and I needed a $50 part, and I did not have $50 for the part. And there was a guy in our church that worked on cars. He was just a hobbyist mechanic, and he was talking about he had this alternator. He's like, yeah, I got this alternator. I don't know what I'm gonna do with it. Fits a Chevy, and I was like, "Really? What what model?" He told me, and I'm like, "Well, would you be willing to trade it? I'll work for you." Because I didn't have any money to buy the thing from him, you know. He's like, "Sure, yeah." So he did some tri- tree trimming and some other stuff, and I was like, "All right, man, you know, tell me the days, and I'll be there." And so he traded it out. It was just one of those things where every time I needed something, I never had extra, but I always had what I needed, and it was because the Lord was. With me. And I know this is going to sound really like this is not the prayer that you want to hear probably from the guy in the pulpit. But if you've never had that, I hope you do. I don't want you to stay there. Okay, obviously. But I hope you do. If you've never been to the place where all you had was the Lord. And then to find out you do have the Lord. And then he'll watch over you and provide for you faithfully. And not just your material needs, but spiritually too. There's just, it changes you. It, it changes you. It changes you forever. And that's what we're going we're, we're gonna to see today. So it's, uh, it's very real to me. I mean, I can remember just thinking at one time like, oh, I just want to have enough money that I can be able to give. And I wanted to be married and have a family so bad. You know, and I'm thinking last night as I've got this wife that I adore, who's <laughs> there's no business for a woman as incredible as her being with a man like me, and four kids that I adore, all in in the beds. And here we are in this you know 2,000 square foot house, and all the kids and the stuff that are in that house can't fit in that house. We literally outgrown the house. And I thought, you know, at one time I was in a a house that was so small, the entire thing would have fit. I mean that. would have fit in that foyer. And I didn't have anything to go in it. And the, the lady that owned the place was like, hey, I've got this little table and a couple of chairs from like the 70s. Looks like it came out of a Hill Street Blues episode, you know. It's true. Hey, can I keep those in here? And I was like, oh, sure, that, that's no problem. I mean, I'm like, I hit the jackpot. I got a table and a couple of chairs. And then I look around at what I had last night and I think, I am not... The kind of grateful that I should be. Anyway. Let's get to Genesis 28. The God we serve is a good God. And he's a faithful God. 
you will not outgive him? The Bible says that he who gives lends to the Lord. You give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. And he'll return to you what you've given. And I can tell you, the Lord has done that at least in my life. I've tried to give. You cannot outgive God. It seems like the more that I've been willing to give to, and I don't mean just give indiscriminately, but give to places that I know are, are preaching the gospel or teaching the gospel or making disciples. The Lord's been faithful to give me more over the years to give. And I have no doubt that if I decided to take all of that money and just squander it on myself, I would not have that money to give anymore. I mean that. And yet, as I've been willing to be a conduit, like the Lord has increased more and more, you cannot outgive God. It's true. If that sounds like a uh, prosperity gospel-like message, it's not. It's just a gospel message. He is about the Father's business. And he wants us to be as well. Last time I preached out of Genesis, we covered chapter 27. So we're going to pick up, we'll pick up the last few verses of 27 and then we'll get through 28. 28 is a very short chapter. 27 was 46 verses long. Pretty big chapter. But 28 is pretty short, so we should be able to get through it all without a problem. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray you would show us great things from your word today. Use me as a mouthpiece to encourage and edify your people through your word, Lord. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today, Lord, for the building up of your people, the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you, for you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. Amen. Amen. Sorry for being... This message is going to be tough for me. Okay, let's take a quick flyover, bird's eye view of what we covered last time. Genesis chapter 27. Uh, oftentimes in your Bible, I hate this, but it's true, it'll be titled like Jacob steals Esau's blessing or the stolen blessing or something like that. And to be quite frank, that's really a bit of a misnomer. Jacob was being deceitful, but it was never Esau's blessing to begin with. God had told Rebekah and Isaac that before the boys were born. The, the older is going to serve the younger before they're even born. And Romans chapter 9 tells us later. Before they had a chance to do anything good or evil, God had said, Jacob I love, Esau I've hated. He did not love Jacob because Jacob was so wonderful or magnanimous or have such wonderful character. It, and it also is not true that he loved Jacob who had, was deficient in character and hated Esau who had good character. I've actually heard that argument before. That's nonsense. No, they, they were both... They both had the kind of character that could easily be despised and rightfully be despised. But God has chosen to love Jacob. Not because of anything great Jacob has done. It's before Jacob has done anything great. God has chosen to love Jacob. And because of him choosing to love Jacob, Jacob is going to do some great things. Jacob is not doing anything great because he has innate greatness. He doesn't. Jacob is going to do great things because God is going to come inside and change him. He's going to change the man that he is. Has he done that to you? He's done that to me. I am not the man I should be. Don't get me wrong. But I, can, I don't remember if it was Newton that said this. I'm not the man I should be. I'm not the man I hope to be. But by God's grace, I'm not the man I once was either. And that's true. And if you've met the Lord, encountered the Lord, if you're born again, that's you too. So let's take this quick flyover. God's blessing to, be, to, to remind you never belonged to Esau in the first place. And really the problem is Isaac makes Esau think that. He lets him think that. God never promised it to Esau and Esau would become enraged and embittered when he thinks he's not going to receive it. By the way, he actually is going to receive some of it. He's going to receive the inheritance. Not just his two-thirds, not just the firstborn, everything. Not just his, everything. But to be frank, none of that was ever his to begin with. He had no reason to be mad. 
That blessing belonged to God. Everything on the earth, in the earth, in the heavens, belongs to the Lord. And he can give it to whomever he chooses. And we have no right to be bitter if he chooses to give another guy more than me or me less than the other guy or whatever. It's his. I I am not owed or entitled anything. And quite frankly, if I was receiving from the Lord on behalf of what my actions earned, I could look forward to wrath, death, hell, the grave. Nothing would be coming to me because I earned through my goodness prosperity, which is a false gospel that's being preached in some churches who call themselves Christian today. And there's nothing Christian about that message. Before they were ever born, God had promised his blessing to Jacob. He spoke it clearly to Rebecca from before the twin boys were ever born. He told her the older would serve the younger. And that statement that the older would serve the younger was in that culture a very clear way of saying God's blessing would rest on the younger brother rather than the older. And that would defy the tradition of the culture. That's a weird thing in that time. But that's not how we do it here. Uh, I don't care how you do it. I'm God. Does that make sense? It's his. If he wants to bless the younger, he can. If he wants to bless the older, he can. He can bless whomever he wants. He's God. He's the king. God is God. And he has every right to bestow his blessing on whomsoever he chooses. If he wants to upend the tradition of the culture, he has that right. And that's exactly what he does. So in reality, God's blessing was always Jacob's to begin with. He didn't need to be scheming or conniving to try to get it. It was already his. A part of the problem was with Isaac. It seems as the boys grew up, Isaac refused to acknowledge what God had already clearly spoken. He refuses to. He seems to have been grooming Esau to be the next in line, even though he knows God has told him the the promise, the blessing is going to rest on Jacob. In a manner of speaking, Isaac has spent now nearly 80 years getting Esau's hopes up. Something that God had already clearly told Isaac was backward. By the way, that passage of Scripture should, should... Kind of be a warning to us all against an attitude of entitlement. The reason Esau got angry was because he saw himself as being entitled to that stuff. And a lot of times, maybe every time, but it's certainly a lot. When you get bitter because you didn't receive X, Y, or Z, it's typically because you feel like, I deserve that. I deserve it and I should have got it. You deserve that, do you? There's other things you deserve, too. There's wrath that you deserve. You don't deserve any blessing of God. You don't deserve any of his protection or provision. And yet he gives it to you. And we can be so ungrateful. God gives us his blessing. He promises to be with us in the journey. He gives us everything we need. He provides for us. He protects us. He watches over us. And we think, well, I don't have enough. Give me more of that stuff, God. I'm angry because you didn't give me more of it. Or not fast enough. You're not entitled to it. And neither am I. If he's angry, Esau is angry when he doesn't receive the blessing because he sees himself as entitled to it. And frankly, part of the reason he sees himself as entitled to it is because Daddy Isaac has led him to believe that he is. That should be something, something of a, a warning to us as fathers and mothers. We do not want to raise children that are entitled, who think everything should be given to them. Well, I deserve it. Now, that's the thinking of the world. You'll hear that over and over and over on the TV, on the music, on the ads. You deserve it. Give yourself what you deserve. If you could give yourself what you deserve, you'd be giving yourself wrath. We also need to keep in mind that in this whole charade, the family business is at stake here, right? 
In that day and age, the inheritance was not divided 50-50 between two boys. It was divided into thirds. The older boy got two shares. The younger got one. He got a double portion. That's where the saying comes from. You're, if you're the firstborn, you are the progenitor, you're the inheritor, you got a double portion of everything. And typically, the younger brother who didn't get the double portion would be driven off. You've got to leave. Can't stay here because you're going to be competition. The older son gets the family business and he gets two-thirds of everything else. Younger son, hey, buddy, I hope you make it. Good luck to you. And that's kind of what's going on with Jacob right now. And I think that's one of the reasons when Jacob comes back years, 20 years later, Esau is really not mad. Because he did get the family business. And not just his two-thirds. He got the whole thing. And there's a reason for that. God was going to show Jacob, you don't have this because your daddy made so much wealth. You have this because you have me. Same thing, by the way, that happened with Elijah and Elisha. Like, this is where the word of faith movement goes so far off the rails. I've literally heard it preached before. Well, Elisha wanted a double portion. He had double the power of Elijah. No, he that's not what happened. When he asked for a double portion, he was saying, I want to be the one that inherits your ministry. I want to be the oldest son, the firstborn son that you've never had. Take me under wing. Make me your successor. That's what he was saying. And that's why as soon as Elijah's gone, what does Elisha do? He rolls up his cape, smacks the water and says, where's the God of Elijah? Why? He was saying, am I the successor or not? God, will you be with me like you were with Elijah? The water parts. It's a pretty good um, indication. Yes. Okay. It'd be hard to take a bath. You know what I mean? I can't get this water. Pretty good indication. That was part of the custom for the day. So in this essence, whoever got the blessing would also be expected to take over the family ranching operation. And Esau would, by the natural, he would be the guy that you would think is pretty qualified for it. He's an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He's gritty. He's tough. He's the kind of character that inspires a bit of respect and maybe even fear. Obviously fear. I mean, when Isaac tells Esau, hey, uh, I actually gave what I was going to give you, that blessing, I gave it to your brother. He's trembling because he's scared. That's the kind of fear this guy inspired. He was obviously a strong, adept individual. And in that day and culture, that's certainly who you want leading the ranching operation. Because there's lots of bad actors who are willing to take from you anything they can get if you're not willing to defend it. And Esau would have been that guy. Isaac doesn't want this wimpy, soft little mama's boy as the leader of the ranch. That would be a disaster. And in a way, he's not wrong. Jacob was totally unqualified for the job. Esau seems to be eminently qualified, but there's a problem. Esau is an absolute heathen. He cares nothing about honoring God. He cares nothing about what God wants. He's a self-centered egomaniac. He doesn't care anything about the blessing of God. He just wants the wealth and prosperity of the ranching operation. In his mind, that is the blessing. Well, the blessing's the money. Well, it's not. That's just an outgrowth of it. Isaac still seems willing to overlook all of that because Esau's his favorite. And the problem is Isaac is looking at that point through this, through the eyes of the flesh rather than the eyes of faith. He's looking at the natural man instead of the spiritual. Jacob might have been everything Isaac did not want to see in terms of leadership and lack of, if you will, rugged masculinity. But he's got something going for him. For all of his obvious character flaws and moral shortcomings, he has a hunger for God. He wants God. And we're going to see in this chapter, when he gets to the place where he has nothing, but he encounters God, he wakes up and says, this place is awesome. Why? Because he cared about God. I want God with me. I want a relationship with God that I saw with my dad. That's what I want. 
What about all the money? Who cares about the money? I've got God. Such irony. He wants God to be his God, not just Daddy Isaac's God. He wants to know God. He wants to see and experience God. He wants to know that God is with him. He doesn't care about all the stuff. He doesn't care about all the wealth, the cattle, the sheep, the donkeys, the servants, etc. That's the stuff that his mama cared about. That's the stuff that his brother cared about. What he does want is the relationship with God that his father had. And that's what God's going to give him. How do I know that he really wants the relationship and doesn't care about all that stuff? He didn't receive anything from nothing. Not a sheep, not a goat, not a donkey, not a servant, nothing. And he never asks about it in the rest of his life. He doesn't ask for it. He will meet up with Esau again and he will bring gifts to Esau. He does not care. It's ironic in terms of material wealth. Esau would actually end up with everything, not just the double portion, everything. Jacob flees for his life and Esau eventually ends up taking over the family business, just like Isaac and Esau both wanted. Doesn't just get the two thirds he thinks he deserves. He gets it all, everything. Of course, when he meets Jacob again 20 years later, he's not mad. He doesn't care. Got what he wanted. I wanted all the stuff. And he got all the stuff, but he didn't get God, and he couldn't care less. And that's because he is a carnal man. So let's pick back up at Genesis 27 at 41, and we'll go through 28. Uh, chapter 28, we'll read all the way through. So Genesis 27, let's start at verse 41, just for context. <coughs> So Esau hated Jacob. This is 2741. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. And then I'll kill my brother Jacob. Willing to kill his own brother over sheep. And nothing's changed today. People still will kill their own brothers and sisters for inheritance, houses, lands, cattle. I literally, I don't know the people. I know of a situation where a guy killed his brother for the cattle that his brother was going to inherit. This is not something that just happened in the Old Testament. Well, thank goodness it doesn't happen anymore. It still happens today. The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now listen, it says something about Esau. When she hears that, she knows he is willing and able. If she didn't think those two things, that he was either willing or able to kill him, she wouldn't have cared. She knows, I've seen Esau, I've seen his character. He is a rough, tough customer. And he's not only willing to kill you, he's able. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, 44, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Remember, it was Rebecca who concocted this plan and got Jacob talked into doing this plan. And, hey, remember, this is what you did. Remember, she told him, don't worry. Because he says, no, I don't want to do this. I'll, I'll, I'll seem to be a deceiver. Don't worry. If you get in trouble, it'll be on me. Mm -hmm. Let's see how that worked out. I'll be the fall guy. No, she won't. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. And I'll stand and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And those few days would actually turn into 20 years. In fact, this would be the last time Jacob and Rebekah would see each other alive. The mother, her favorite son. Sin has consequences. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. That's true. But the reason that she's concocting this story is not because she's so weary of these. She's trying to get her baby boy out before he gets killed. And God is working through it. 
46, if Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Here's chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you'll not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your uh, mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you might be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Paden Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Notice something. Didn't go with camels. Didn't go on a horse. He had nothing. He didn't have a couple of sheep. He didn't have any oxen. Nothing. The guy who has just been promised the double portion, who's just been promised the blessing. I mean, this is the irony. God, you just told me all of this stuff would be mine. And now he's got nothing. He's absolutely destitute. The only thing he has, he has the clothes on his back and his staff. That's what we're going to find out chapters later. A few chapters down the road, we're going to hear Jacob talk about this journey and say, God, when you brought me into this place, the only thing I had was my staff. He did not even have an extra change of clothes. That's why he had to use a stone for a pillow. He literally had nothing else but his staff. You want to talk about a lonely exile. He's going to a place where he knows no one. He has nothing. There's nobody looking out for him. I mean, he's on a journey that has plenty of bad actors, plenty of bandits, if you will. And he's got nobody. You did not travel that far through that place alone at that time. You remember a few chapters before? When Abraham's looking for a wife for Isaac? Does he send out his servant by himself? Heck no. He sends out a, a veritable army. You take this stuff there, you get that girl, you bring her back. Now Isaac, the one who knows about that, is sending his son by himself. But Scripture does say later that when he blessed him, he did it in faith. I think this is the first time. I think Isaac finally realizes, you know what? This is God's doing. God has said he's going to be with this boy, and he's going to be with this boy. And so he says, ah, this is hard. Here you are. May God be with you. Because there's nobody else that is. I'm sending you off into the arms of God. I think as a father, he probably did a lot of praying after that. I know I would. Your boy is leaving with nothing. And my guess is it's still because he fears his other son. I think he would have sent Isaac off with plenty of stuff. Or I'm sorry, Jacob off with plenty of stuff. Except he knows if he does... Esau's rage is going to be kindled again. And remember, Isaac was just trembling at the rage of Esau just when Esau was crying because he'd blessed Jacob. Esau has already breathed out very culpable, murderous threats. And I think Isaac is thinking, man, if we give him anything, we're all dead. Which is a lack of faith on his part. But he leaves. It, that's strange. That, that should, that, the irony of that should capture us. He didn't have a caravan, no bodyguards, no extra set of clothes. He is destitute. And he's just been told he's going to inherit all of this. Not only that, by the way, but the land that he's leaving is the land he was told he would inherit. That's the land he's been promised. It looks like he's been absolutely ruined And it's by his own sin. Think about that. What what would you feel like? I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew when she told me to do that, I should not have listened. And I did it, and now I've lost everything. 
I've lost my family. I've lost any hope of wealth or material rich. I've lost everything. And it's my fault. Have you ever been there? I'll bet you have. I have. I've definitely been in places before I thought, you know what? It's my own sin. It's my own fault. I've lost it all. There's no one to blame but me. Now what? And the first night, he's by himself, destitute and alone, and probably a little bit fearful. Here's the Lord showing up. That breaks me down, man. It looks like all the promises, all his bright, promising future has just gone up in smoke because of his own bad choices. And yet, here's God. Back to this, uh, verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paden Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paden Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, he went to Ishmael and took his wife besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. Esau still does not get it. It has never bothered him at all up to this point that he had married two women that were from idolatrous tribes. It didn't bother him at all that those women displeased God or his parents. But now he sees, well, wait a minute. Maybe I could get some blessing out of this deal. Okay. In his mind, he's going to secure the blessing by marrying a granddaughter of Abraham. Aha! That's how I'll get this blessing. Abraham's flesh. He's still operating in the flesh. He thinks he's going to secure the blessing through the flesh of Abraham. That same kind of thinking plagued the Jews of Jesus' day. The same kind of thinking plagues the Jews today. If you think the blessing of God is on you because of your genetic lineage, you are a fool. Your genes do not make you better or worse than any other section or segment of humanity. Blessing does not come through the flesh of Abraham. It comes through his seed, singular, Jesus Christ. The flesh of Abraham will do nothing for you. The flesh will do nothing for you. Only Jesus Christ can say, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. It is through the flesh and blood of Christ that your blessing is secured. That your favor with God is secured. That your protection and provision is secured. It's not because of who your dad is or your granddad or your great-granddad. No, it's, it's not Abraham's flesh you need. It's Abraham's God you need. Esau wants the blessing of Abraham's flesh. Jacob doesn't care about all that stuff. He just wants the God of Abraham. Esau is still operating the flesh. He's a carnal man. In fact, he will become an archetype for carnality and fleshly living in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, 16, uh, the scripture cautions us that no one should be sexually immoral or godless like Esau. Verse 10, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. There is something in that. Don't miss that. He stayed there that night because the sun is set. He doesn't know anyone. If he'd have known anyone on the journey, he would have gone to their house, their city, stayed with them. That was, that was the custom of the day. <clears throat> That's what you do because if you stay out in the open, you're going to get robbed. You're going to get beaten. Like, it's not a good idea. He doesn't have that. He's got nobody to stay with. He has nowhere to go. Until he gets all the way to Laban's home. And he's walking, baby. It's going to take a while. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. It's dark. I can't go any farther. Might as well lay down on the road. So taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. That's destitute. When the only thing you have for a pillow is a rock that you found on the wayside. You're poor. Fleeing for his life. He doesn't have a tent. He doesn't have a pack mule. Doesn't even have an extra set of clothes, a blanket, a coat to roll up as a pillow. 
The man who grew up accustomed to affluence and servants and wealth and privilege is now without even the most basic of comforts. He's an outcast, he's all alone, and he's dirt poor. He is at the lowest point of his entire life by far. And when he has absolutely no one else, look who shows up. God. The high king of all the universe is happy to dwell with the lowly and humble. Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly. And I'm glad he does. The scripture says he's not ashamed to be called their God. He's not ashamed to be called the God of someone who has nothing. And I'm glad of that. God meets Jacob in the middle of the mess that Jacob has made. And he doesn't scold him about his idiotic actions and his lack of integrity as he could. He meets Jacob in his lowest and most vulnerable point. And he treats him as a loving father would. He reassures him. Tells him not to fear. Tells him he's with him. He's watching over him. That's how he treats him. Even in the middle of his own mess. Let's read it. Verse 12. And Jacob dreamed and behold there was a ladder or staircase. That same word can mean staircase. There's a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And I'll keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. How awesome is this place? Where, there's no sumptuous food for him. There's no servants or camels or flocks. How awesome is this place? Why? Because I finally have God. I finally have met the Holy One, the King of the earth, the King of all creation. This place is awesome. He was here and I didn't even know it. God is the real treasure that Jacob so desperately wants. And it's why he doesn't care about all the rest. He's lost every material possession he ever had and he's giddy. Why? Because the lowest point in his entire life just became the high point. Why? Because in the lowest point of his entire life, he had an encounter with the living God. Have you had that kind of experience? Been in the depths of your despair, crushed in your soul? I'm in this big mess that I've made or helped make. and I've got nothing. I'm an idiot. What can I do? There's no one for me to cry to. Nobody cares. And the king of all creation shows up and gently reminds you, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. I still love you. I'm still with you wherever you will go. You're not in this alone. You're not trudging through this by yourself. I am here with you. The lowest point in your life can become a significant place in your spiritual journey. It was for me. So that's where I met the king too. You become a turning point in your spiritual development. It will forever leave a mark on your soul. You'll never forget it. Jacob will never forget this place. He will set up a heap and he will keep coming back to it. Keep coming back. In fact, this is so significant. When God speaks to Jacob later, he'll say, I'm the same God that talked to you back at Bethel. Remember that? Remember I told you I was going to be with you? I'm that same God. I never left. It's almost like a spiritual scar or like a spiritual tattoo. It's indelible. It leaves a mark on you. You have that experience. You meet the king. You got nothing but him, and then you realize all you need is him. It's life-changing. When you get to the point where you realize all you have is him and that's all you need, 
It will change your life. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. That's all he had. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and he'll keep me in this way that I go and he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. That's what Jacob says. Notice verse 18, he rose early in the morning. The first thing that happened, as soon as that happened, I'm celebrating, I'm doing something. I'm commemorating this event. What are you going to commemorate it with? You're going to have a feast? You're going to have food for a feast. Got this stone for my pillow. I'll set it up as an altar. I'll pour oil on it. That's a precious commodity that he obviously doesn't have much of because he can, he's only got what he can carry. He pours out what little he has to God and says, this is the house of God. This is where I met the king. And from here on out, you will be my God. God had decided he's going to meet Jacob in the lowest point of his life. That's going to be where he'll show himself strong. Jacob is going to return 20 years later a very prosperous, wealthy man. But God wants him to know everything you have, everything is because of me. It's not because of your parents. It's not because of your pals. It's me. There will be no question about it. I'd love to go on. I have so much that I don't have time. Trying to cram four hours of message into 40 minutes. I can't do that. But I can say this. I've had people, by the way, ask me about tithing. This scripture asked me about tithing. Is tithing for the New Testament? Are we commanded? I cannot give you a positive command in the New Testament that says you must tithe. But I've also heard people say, well, tithing was part of the Mosaic law. Like, well, this is a long time before Moses. Abraham tithed, Jacob tithed, Isaac tithed. I can't tell you you have to. I can tell you that I have. And God has seen my every need. And there was a time where it was, do I tithe or do I buy food? And I was going to tithe. I'm going to prove God in this. So I did. And I did not have money for food. I thought, hey, I was actually rationalizing in my mind. Because I was getting paid every two weeks. And I thought, well, you can go 14 days without food and make it. (laughs) That's crazy, dude. (laughs) I was poor, dude. I can remember going to uh, Ronnie and Randy's. And they had busted out some, like, ramen packets. And I was like, hey, is it it okay if if I have one of those? And like, yeah. But to me, that was a big deal. Like sharing your food, buying food for somebody, that was a big deal. Because I didn't have a lot of money to buy food for anybody. Right? That was where I was. The Lord has always looked after me. Always. Not when I deserved it. When I didn't deserve it, too. There's never been a time... For I deserved him to look after me. Yet he's been faithful. David said this. He says, I was once young and now I'm old. This thing have I never seen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Nor his seed begging for bread. I haven't either. I have not always had a lot. There have been times where I had very, very little. But God was faithful to make sure I had everything I needed. I didn't have money to buy food, and yet here the Lord brings a little old lady from our church with groceries. I'm telling you right now, I don't even remember what the groceries were that she bought, but I'm sure they were delicious. You know what I'm talking about? Like, hey, it's great value. That is the greatest stuff I've ever eaten or drank. You're hungry for a few days. It gets really good. 
I had just enough money for some ramen and a can of tuna one time. I hadn't eaten for, I don't know, a day or two. And I remember I made them, and I was like, that is the best thing I've ever made. I just thought it was so good. I put some hot sauce in it because I had some hot sauce, like half a bottle of hot sauce still in the refrigerator. You know, you're looking in there. What do I still have? So I, a few months ago, I decided I'm going to make that again. That was a really good meal. That was terrible. That was horrible. <laughs> you're hungry, though. It's like, this is incredible. No, God's faithful to you, church. He will watch over you. He'll give you what you need. Be faithful to him and watch. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's not. He knows you aren't. and He knows you won't be. And he's still saying, I'm here. In your lowest time, I'm here. I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to watch over you. I am your exceedingly great reward. It's not the money. It's not the land. It's, not the, it's me. He is that exceedingly great reward. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who's faithful to your people. That you watch over us, you provide for us, you protect us. God, let us be grateful people, not entitled, not grumbling because we want more. Somebody else has more than we have, as we're so wont to do. God, let us be grateful people, thankful of how you watch over us, protect us, provide for us, that we are sojourners in wilderness, in a place we don't know, and a people we don't know. And without you, we're nothing but food for the predators. And yet you're so, you're so good to watch over us, to protect us, to keep us in our comings and our goings. Thank you, God, for being so faithful, so faithful to us, so faithful to me. Let us have a heart like Jacob. If we have you, we know we have everything we need. God, I ask you to give us a spirit of gratefulness this week, Lord. I thank you for it, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.